Welcome to the Metta Hour podcast with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, visit www.beherenownetwork.com slash Sharon. Enjoy listening. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and today I'm joined by Gary Gock. Gary has been meditating and writing for nearly 60 years and is lay ordained in Thich Nhat Hanh's Plum Village Community of Engaged Buddhism. He's the author of the best-selling book, The Complete Idiot's Guide to Buddhism, and has been published in numerous magazines and anthologies. His most recent book, Pause, Breathe, Smile, Awakening Mindfulness When Meditation Is Not Enough, was released in September of this year from Sounds True Publications. He's also the author of a poetry anthology, What Book? Buddha Poems from Beat to Hip Hop. So welcome, Gary. Thank you. It's an honor to be here, Sharon. Thank you so much. And it actually worked. We worked it out. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> These things are not easy. So I, I usually like to begin uh, just by asking what brought you to the path of meditation and how your path with it has unfolded. Huh. Oh, well... I don't know if I could put it on the back of a matchbook, but I'll mm-hmm. try. The simple Say answer, as long as you want. <laughs> okay, well, it's just kind of simple that when I was eight, um, I had a vision of what I later found out is called interbeing. I didn't know what it was, but it was like so powerful that I mm, kept it like a piece of gold that I didn't want to be mixed in with my coins, and there's a special blue jeans pocket for that kind of thing. So metaphorically, I just sort of it stayed with me in my bones. And then um, I was getting cigars for my grandfather at the corner st- uh, liquor store, cigar store, and there was a paperback book in the spin rack with a beautiful picture of a Buddha and calligraphy saying, The Way of Zen. So I splurged 35 cents and took it home and Lo, on page 37, there was what I saw. Didn't Mm. have anything to do with creator deity or soul or heaven or anything that most people would connect it to that I would talk to. It was pretty much what the Buddha talks about, the unimpeded interpenetration of all things as being the nature of reality. So from there, I decided, well, this is, must be the way I vibrate when I resonate with the universe and set out to find out more. I, there was a, a you, don't, you probably don't remember this, but maybe some of the older members of the, who are listening remember there was these things called the Little Blue Books, and you could get them for anywhere from mm-hmm. five cents to 15 cents. And they were mail order, and they had hundreds of things. And I got one on uh, Yogi Meditation, so, I, you know, started with a little pamphlet because in those days, and also being a young kid, there just weren't, it wasn't accessible. Like now kids are learning in school, but not when I was in school. Mm-hmm. And then when I, you know, left school, um, there were still more um, Buddhas sitting behind glass cases in museums than uh people teaching living people sitting around on cushions or anything. So there was then that long, long period of uh, observing the, what does Rick Fields call it? The swans coming to the lake, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the coming of the Dharma to America. And I was very fortunate to uh, meet uh, Suzuki Roshi and Katagari Roshi. I also had a Hasidic uh, teacher, Shlomo Karlebach, and studied Kabbalah with him. But when I met um, Thich Nhat Hanh and the Sangha in their second visit to Berkeley, I was like, oh, this is it. I felt at home. I felt warmth as well as light. So that became my um, the teacher for modeling how this goes about and a community with which to practice and how to build a community eventually, because there wasn't one in San Francisco. So I learned about starting a Sangha on your own. And we'll see, our Sangha has been meeting weekly for 10 years now. Mm. 
So that's in a, in a nutshell. That's great. So the sangha, the word sangha means community, I should say. Yeah. In case anybody you. doesn't quite it's get a pra- that. It's a group of people that want to practice together. And we sit and walk and talk. And if people said, well, I sit and I walk and I talk, I'd say, yeah, but when we sit, we know we're sitting. We're not doing anything else. Mm-hmm. And we go outdoors and we walk on the green earth by four large poplars and smell the sea breeze and hear the birds and give thanks to Mother Earth just by walking and being mm. uh, alive. And talking is sort of what we might say we're doing. We're communing with each other at the source, mm. listening. So tell me, um, first of all, congratulations on your new book. Oh, thank you. Thank um, you. It's always a, an achievement, I think, to yeah. to pull all the pieces together and actually create a book. Really a big achievement. And So tell me what was the impetus for it. Oh, good question. Um, looking back now, I would say, uh, one of the big... Uh, motivations, reasons, impetuses were, was that, uh, this is in 2013. Um, I wanted on two things, I guess. One is I wanted to, uh, express or write or create, um, having been ordained and seeing what it would be like because ordination for me was very transformative. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, didn't write this book the way I would have written anything else. It was just part of, it became part of the practice, writing as mindfulness. And at that time, um, as I, as I began writing about mindfulness, there was, um, evidences of, um, pushback or, um, backlash against aspects of the um, secularization of mindfulness mm-hmm. or the adoption of mindfulness by neoliberals or whatever it was. It was just started coming out everywhere. And I'm like, well, gee, guys, you know, what do you, you can't throw away the baby with the dishwater here. Mm-hmm. Whether or not these, whatever these critiques are. Actually, I think it's bathwater. People don't usually throw away babies with dishwater. Oh, did I say dishwater? By the way, I know you're a poet, but. <laughs> no, I'm just. Just to be more literal about it. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, what was the baby doing in the dishwater You're to begin right. with? What's <laughs> the baby doing with, with the luck? So, anyhow, um, so what I thought I'd do would uh, be to see if I could consolidate a lot of the good ground and use it as a base um, to build out further so that people might have a sense of mindfulness as not just a, say, technique, but as a way uh, of living and being that could be 24 by 7, mm-hmm. which is what I think it is, is what it is for me. And so, um, you know, for a beginner, it could be a very good way to begin. For somebody who's already adept, it could be an interesting way to see it from a new lens. I guess one of the ideas is that you can see, you know, all these advantages that people are are advertising, uh, like better focus or quality relations or calm or everything, as certainly attainable, but also not as being necessarily ends, mm, but as prompts for maybe taking a deeper dive. Mm-hmm. And the book uh, affords that uh, opportunity. So the um, book is divided into three main sections, right? Pause, breathe, and then smile. And so if you could uh, walk us through each one of those, that would be great. Oh, yeah. Well, it's a three-handled title. It also are, is the structure of the book. Mm-hmm. But That's I'll, convenient. <laughs> yeah, it's, it worked out well. And I also will add it... it, it um, it has a table of contents where the three are just in interpenetrating circles or spheres, and you can read them in any order. Oh, how cool. That's really great. Yeah, I mean, I didn't want to do that whole... Ma- I got tired of the do this, do this, mail, the mail order kind of linear mm-hmm. <laughs> table mm-hmm. of contents. They have both. But 
what I what I'm really trying to say is that the three are interdependent. Mm-hmm. I, I talk of, I can, I'm going to talk about each three, but that it's how they interact that makes mindfulness something you can take off the mat and mm-hmm. practice. Mm-hmm. You know, twenty four by seven. So pausing um, refers to um, intention. Um, for example, uh, a jewel thief may be in the now. That's like the job description, really, is being in the now. Mm-hmm. But they may not have a sense of what they do as affecting others and causing harm. They may be thinking only of themselves. Uh, you know, a narcissist can be in the now, but they aren't necessarily developing conscious conduct that could benefit themselves and others. So pausing refers to that um, kind of a discipline, discerning also that one is able to take a step back and uh, bring space into the situation that one is in. So you're not reacting all the time, but able to discern and then respond in in an intentional way. Um, so that we can, you know, not be sleepwalking. So we're mm-hmm. not just following our uh, animal natures or something and really live a, a beautiful, fulfilling life that we're meant to live. Um, breathing, <laughs> it's kind of, it, it's almost counterintuitive that you would tell anybody anything about breathing. But we're breathing 20,000 times a day, and we're not always conscious of our mm. breathing. And as many of the listeners, if not most, know, by shifting our awareness to our breathing, we give ourselves a focus of awareness that um, enables us not only to be in the now, because our body is breathing now and here, but also it helps integrate, it allows the body and the mind to integrate. I'll put it that way. I, I don't necessarily that that breath does it, but it creates a a space in which body and mind find each other, and not only settle down, but that can unify. I mean, I could go on about breathing. It's such a mm-hmm. marvelous thing, but just one of the you know aspects of mindfulness that's unique is it's not breathing any particular way. Um, pranayama, as I understand it, in yoga seems to want to have a certain full quality of breath, whereas mindful breathing, as I understand it, is about letting the breath be what it is and not controlling it in the least. Just letting go and being aware and then seeing if the breath Uh, If it wants to be longer, if it wants to be shorter, if it wants to be smoother, and um, noticing how the mind also has a similar qualities of depth and focus and so forth. So, you know, breathing is like, it seems like every tradition knows breathing somehow as part of the contemplative path. And with this little unique aspect of it that mindfulness brings to it. Um, my editor, Carolyn Pincus, bless her soul, she said, now, smiling, how are you going to get that across? <laughs> you know, as mm-hmm. um, something that often you smile because it's beyond words, it's just kind of a fruition. Really, what it refers to here is um, a wisdom philosophy or tradition of, of, of ways of looking at the world. And I think um, kind of central, three central interrelated views here are that everything's impermanent, you know, it's like breath is, um, that everything's interconnected, just like breath is, and um, everything's open and selfless. It's, we don't need to control because everything is already um, infinitely possible. 
And that kind of recognition brings us freedom from a sense of isolation or um, separation from everything else. And just the practice of smiling, just the actual um, (laughs) mouth yoga, as someone called it. Jack Cornfield corrected me when I, I used half smile at one point. He said, it's just a faint smile. Mm. It's like two muscles. It can be an inner smile. Mm-hmm. Nobody, nobody sees. So pausing, breathing, and smiling is something that anyone can always practice in a moment. And it's also, it refers to um, the structure of uh, viewing and living in a mindful way with intentionality. Um, a con- contemplative, reflective um, um, philosophy, and um, yeah, just in, in harmony with what is. Well, it strikes me first of all that um, pausing, you know, is is often difficult for us. It's hard to remember. And I don't know that it's that hard to do, but mm-hmm. I find it takes. You know, for me and uh, people I encounter, it takes a good degree of intentionality because mm-hmm. most people's lives are pretty full. We're over busy. We're consumed with things. We're like uh, overwrought, you know, and we're anxious. And and I, I think of Thich Nhat Hanh's, uh, one of his uh, pretty famous recommendations, like don't pick up the phone on the first ring, let it ring three times and breathe. And I remember going into a like a financial firm in New York and saying that, and I looked up and I saw the complete panic on everyone's faces. And I said, well, maybe for you guys just twice, you know, just let it ring twice. But even twice, I mean, who's going to remember? You know, well, you need strong intentionality to remember in the midst of chaos and, you know, yeah, yeah. all of that. I think of a saying, it's six words that you, I think you once said, but maybe you're quoting someone, <laughs> practices in the return. Yes, it is me. <laughs> I love it. It's, I think it's, it applies here, too. You're, as I remember, you know, it refers to being aware that when you're sitting mm-hmm. and the mind has wandered and you're aware the mind has wandered, yeah. the practice is being aware, not beating oneself up of, oh, I'm a failure, my mind wanders, mm-hmm. I can't do this, but just recognizing, oh, I have a mind and my mind wanders and bringing it back and returning and that bringing back and returning is a, is a form, I think, of um, intentionality. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it, it, I, the way I look at it now in my own practice is that when I find a little thing that works for me, mm-hmm. like, oh, I recognize my mind wandered. Oh, I recognized I wanted to beat myself up, but I said, nah, don't mm-hmm. do it. Mm-hmm. Better just to go back to the breathing. Mm, yeah, the breathing's better. That I could use that as a model that I could apply by extension. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that when I recognize I have this kind of mm, intentionality muscle somewhere, I don't know where it is, but I mm-hmm. know I've mm-hmm. done it. The more I can find applications for it, um, the more I recognize it's it's possible and useful, and I agree it's it's absolutely um, kind of going against the stream of mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the way we're designed as humans and the way our society is structured. Um, but <laughs> you know, as uh, some people say, it's like conscious evolution. <laughs> This is why I think people use reminders. You know, they have their computer make some funny sound every now and then or the phone ringing or... um, I have a friend who's a second-generation meditator and he said he was about seven years old or so and his parents said to him, "Um, you can buy a... or, you know, we're going to give you a a packet of of stickers, like these red circles. Yeah. And he said, they said, you can put these up anywhere in your, your bedroom that you want. So he did. Then they said, and every time your eye falls on a, a red circle, just take a breath. Yeah, the red dot meditation. Another you know, one and that is, was his first Velcro. meditation. Uh-huh. You get a little Velcro circle, 
and you put it, say, behind your computer. And then you reach behind your computer and you just touch the Velcro. Mm -hmm. It could be, and it could be, um, so it could be a picture as well as a sound. Mm -hmm. As you say, it could be the sight of something, the reminder. And I find that anything can be a reminder. Mm -hmm. It could be something annoying. (laughs) (laughs) You know. That's funny. (laughs) Well, Give me an example of an annoying reminder. You know, the sound and noise, the siren or the low flying Mm -hmm. helicopter, and then recognizing Mm -hmm. my mind is being annoyed. Well, my Uh mind is being annoyed right now. Mm -hmm. It's a reminder. I'm right now. It's here and now. Yeah. That's very funny. (laughs) For, you know, certain weeks, you you might say, I'm going to use only annoying reminders now. I'm in such a bad mood. (laughs) Well, yeah, I guess you could. I think the tr- the creative part of it is seeing what it could be any particular mm-hmm. day. You know, it doesn't have to be you know on Tuesdays. It's going to be annoying things, and mm-hmm. Wednesday it's going to be angry things. But it could just be anything, and when I need it, and um, sometimes when I least expected it. The one that always gets me is say if I'm meditating. Mm-hmm. And like I hear the phone or something, or the cable car bell, and I, well, what am I supposed to stop? I'm already meditating. <laughs> but then I realize, well, maybe you should just stop this idea that you're meditating uh-huh. and just enjoy sitting. <laughs> Does your, your community ever do these things collectively, like make resolve, like, oh, this week we're going to use this as a reminder or something like that? Uh, it's an idea. I, I hadn't thought of it. You know, it could be a journal kind of an activity. This week, write all the instances where, and you pick a kind of reminder. That's a good idea. I mean, I just thought of it because we don't do exactly this in in uh, Barry and the community around the Insight Meditation Society, but sometimes we do undertake kind of collective Resolves because resolve is is also a factor in this working, right? So, yeah, yeah. Um, one resolve, for example, would be um, if you have a really strong desire to give something, not just like a little blippy passing thought, but you know, it really comes up. I want to give this whatever, and it's not going to cause harm. It's not like I'm going to give away all my money, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, give it, even if the next fifty thoughts are fearful. Like you want to give someone a book, and then you think, well, you know. I've been carrying it around through three moves. I haven't read it yet, but it's so close to the top of the pile. And maybe it's the one book I need to read to be enlightened. I shouldn't give it away. And, yeah. you know, but watch your mind the whole time. So you watch yeah. the impulse to give and what that feels like. You watch what it's like when all the fear comes and the resistance. You watch what it's like as you actually give it. And you watch what it's like afterwards. Like, do you ever actually regret it? You know, and so that just gives us... Um, a way of uh, exploring something that has a whole range of feelings right. and uh, is, a, is a real great life lesson, and we, we do it together. And how did you share the resistances and the breakthroughs as a group? Well, through conversation, because we're all there in the same, you know. That's perfect. That's so good. I'll bring it to my uh, community. All right. That's so great. <laughs> yeah. And what do you mean by insight? What do I mean by insight? Yeah, like, um, uh, if the fruition, like through smile, right, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is insight, um, I was thinking of that because uh, some of the um, critique, you know, the the mindfulness blowback, which you referenced before, has to do with, uh, I think, a lack of emphasis on mindfulness leading to insight. Uh-huh. You know, and so um, there's sort of a uh, either an equation of mindfulness with just focus, calm, focus. calm, exactly, yeah. and and uh, some <laughs> sense of um, well, of course, it's not that radical or it's not that transformational because you're just feeling a little better, you know? Well, uh, I'm kind of reluctant to answer 
to the question being asked by my um, idol, you know, my, my <laughs> no, hero, no. heroine, first creator of the first intentional uh, secular mindfulness community in America called Insight Meditation. Yeah, yeah. People yeah. ask you, what's Insight? Do you have a ready um, short answer? Oh, it doesn't have to be short. I'm just, uh, what would you call the fruition of okay, so I'll, this I'll kind go. of practice? So for me, yeah. in, you know, it's, it is, it, it, you've really set it up that, that, that part of it is you have to be, be able to be centered and grounded, mm-hmm. but that's not necessarily enough. Mm-hmm. So I'm mm-hmm. centered and grounded, I'm calm and I'm focused. Now what? Right. And that when we're, when we're in, uh, our range of ability to, uh, you know, be sovereign to our own lives and helpful for others. Um, the way I look at it is as a mirror, mm-hmm. just to use an analogy, that life mirrors for me. Um, it could be love. It could be compassion. It could be um the possibility of fear or um, anger, mm-hmm. that whatever it is, whether I see it in myself or others, I recognize, and this becomes an insight that just sort of occurs, that this pertains in an important way to me and others for identifying and accepting and working with to... Um, transform um, a limited point of view into something that's more Mm -hmm. uh, spacious and uh, available for other people. Mm -hmm. Um, And they often have to do with these philosophical things, you know, like inner being. Oh, Mm -hmm. well, if I felt that, then, then somebody else would have that there's a kind of a ripple effect of things or, mm-hmm. um, but they, and then, and then, so given an impetus of an insight kind of arising of itself, it's just sort of a mirroring process where you go, you go from, ah, I'm grounded and I'm calm and I'm to just, ah, an insight arises. Then I, what I do, and I think this is, partly what a lot of the tradition of insight is, correct me if I'm wrong, is I'll come back to it another time mm-hmm. when I'm on the cushion or maybe just walking from the car to the door uh, and bring it up and kind of look at it a little more. See, you know, it's like a cat that wants to show you how to play with it. Just explore it. See where mm-hmm. it goes. And see what's behind that, and what's what's connected to this, and what if I let it go, and what's at stake, and and that part of it, I guess I call it discernment. Tibetans call it analytic mind. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It is usually overlooked mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in in the in the common sense of you know it's it's the image of some guy with a long beard on top of a mountain that you're mm-hmm. supposed to climb and he's supposed to tell you something. But it's um, it's that process of uh, being receptive to life, uh, informing us what we need to know, and having the resolve and, and tools to work with it, so that the insight can take us further along. Mm-hmm. Uh, I should stop. This, no, I think this, that's great because I'm. I'm is this close so. to what? Yeah, no, I think that's great. I mean, I think that you know, I was I was thinking of um, your initial comment about the the blowback, you know, yeah. and uh, and how you know what people are complaining about doesn't exactly match my experience of mindfulness and and its potential, which includes you know, kind of um, you could say analysis. It's not. Uh, cognitive analysis per se, you know, but it's a, a really deep looking and in Pali, the, um, the word is actually a compound. It's sati, which is mindfulness, sati sampajanya, which is, uh, mindfulness and clear comprehension. Right. 
you know, so they're considered to go together. Yeah, they're like twin wings. Yeah. Well, the reason I'm being kind of um, asking you as my uh-huh. uh, older sister in, uh-huh. in this uh-huh. path is that, you know, my tradition in uh, the Vietnamese Zen uh-huh. mindfulness uh-huh. tradition, we never use the word mind insight that I yeah. recall. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And yet we do, we, we do work with... Uh, the insight process of, of right, deep looking, right, right, maybe because it includes Zen along with the mind. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but uh, yeah, it's and so you know, it's back to why one reason I kind of wanted, and I didn't write the book to tell anybody this is what mindfulness is. I just thought, mm-hmm. you know, if I'm going to spend the time to to learn something, what better way to learn something than to write a book mm-hmm. is to get a better handle on. Because I've always wondered, you know, well, what is insight? <laughs> you know? It isn't something that somebody can tell you. They can maybe tell you their own story, but that's their story. Yeah. yeah. And to find out for oneself and then to be able to mm, present the kind of space and causes and conditions that one can uh, look at to find out for oneself. Um, yeah, it seemed to me to be a neglected um, you know, the stereotype. It's, mm-hmm. it, there's a stereotype of mindfulness neglecting deep-seeing, uh, comprehensive-looking, clear-looking, mm-hmm. um, and integrating it with... There's something I learned in Vietnamese called study-observe practice, I'll share with you. Mm. Um, it's a Vietnamese term, and it's, par- it's apparently fairly common in Vietnamese then, where you need something to, I need something to feed my head. I just can't get all mm-hmm. this from, from the air. I just, I'm sitting. I just, I need a teacher or something to point me to something to study. And as I study it, I observe it in my life. And observing it in my life means I observe it within myself first. And I also notice it elsewhere, outside of myself, but anything I'm seeing outside of myself is often my own reflection of my own biases. Mm-hmm. And if, I, if I think somebody is doing something that's annoying, it's really something within me mm-hmm. that gets annoyed about something. So I, I, so I study something, then I'm observing it in the world, and then I put it into practice. Studying, mm-hmm. observing it, and then putting it into practice by not just observing and studying, but actually doing in action uh, creates the possibility that, uh, mm, yeah, maybe uh, there is a better way, or, mm, yeah, maybe this is a tether that I need to let go of so I can go further. And then that might return me back for more study and for more observation. But for me, it's a good um, rubric for my... um, training and deepening my insight. Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny, you know, I, I've always thought of um, Thich Nhat Hanh as a poet. Oh, yeah, me too. I, I, yeah. First, I first read his poetry before anything else. Really? It was a little chapbook that came out of Santa Barbara in the 60s. Uh-huh. Yeah. I remember sitting, I was in Sri Lanka, and oh, gosh, somewhere huh. in the 70s, and... Uh, Somehow I got a copy of Miracle of Mindfulness, and I'd never heard of him, you know, and I was just reading it, and I thought, oh, my God, what an incredible, beautiful, poetic expression of everything that I believe in. So now I'm thinking of you as a poet and, and that relationship between you and him as um, and that appreciation in that realm. It is true. Because it does reach us in another place, you know, not not necessarily a literal instructional place, you know, yeah, like do I've, these four I've things. I've listened to him in French, mm. <laughs> and I've listened to him in Vietnamese, and of course I've listened to him in English. Mm-hmm. And he has a way with words that's just uncanny. And uh, yeah, I I don't think most people would go so far, but I would totally agree. It's poetry. Yeah. Uh, when he says of or the, it's as important as rock and mm. love. 
so that everything is just invested with this tremendous care of um, of, of, of telling. Thank you for that, uh, Sharon. No, that's great. So I am, as you know, uh, working on a book, and uh, yeah, it's about uh, mindfulness, loving kindness, and social change or social action. And I realized that one of the um, assumptions that I and many people were making were that um, it was a very circumscribed definition of social change. And at one point, I realized my own limitation. And I, I was in conversation with someone, and I said, what about art, you know? Yeah. What about really opening this definition? Because art may be uh, incredibly d disruptive and onward leading and pointing us to... Uh, inspiration, inspiring us to action. So uh, uh, I'd love to talk to you about that. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and consciousness changing. And consciousness changing. And how do we change the so-called world and people if we can't change their consciousness? Mm -hmm. And if we can change consciousness, it seems like everything else would seem to follow. Although, the, uh, you know, the, the, you read the, po the political... Uh, philosophers and some say, no, 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 you have to change the material world first. Mm -hmm. But even they will agree, you know, that there's a very important role that we have where art seems to be more than just, you know, please pass the salt. Mm -hmm. Although please pass the salt is a kind of an art too, you know, mm -hmm. it's direct and it goes right to the source, but to say something in a way that, um, you know, lifts one out of oneself so that one empathizes with the, uh, the person saying it. Mm -hmm. You know, there's the reader and there's the writer, and that implies a communion already of a social, of a social bond. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I think all art in some way, I, you know what, it, it, I, I, I'll, feed, I'll give you feedback just from my own sense of reading your, your mm -hmm. recent book. Mm -hmm. Real love, which I love, Thank and you. how it uses yeah, it uses um, these three models of uh, love in oneself and love for another and love in mm -hmm. the world. And I think art is like that. You know, at some level, um, I can keep a journal and nobody may ever see it, mm -hmm. but I could write, you know, all kinds of things, and yet that is can change my way of seeing and viewing and to consider it as as being a social medium whether it's dance or painting or writing that someone else is going to witness it someone else is going to commune with it mm -hmm. that implies you know a way of connecting with other people and and communicating and communing with other people that can be quite different than the usual you know, like poetry is outside of the realm of uh, capitalism. Mm -hmm. It exists outside of the cash nexus. Mm -hmm. I mean, you may get a grant, but it's kind of a non-paying <laughs> profession. Uh -huh. You know. Um, and in that sense, art is also... And then also, I think of art as being just the nature of reality. As, mm -hmm. you know... Uh, more and more, I think of it as the, as Mother Earth. That Mother Earth is this great artist. Oh wow! Yeah, you know that's just created, you know, not just you and me, but everything that we know of practically is all a product of this great artist, Mother Earth, with cooperation of Father Son or whatever, and the whole universe. That the universe is in a creative state, and that when I'm um, creative, when I'm being artistic, um, it's just really kind of following, you know, my true nature and um, allows me to recognize all, you know, everyone's my brother, everyone's my sister, that I don't really own the art. Uh, it becomes its own. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. I, it, to go back to what I said at the first thing about, you know, my uh, uh, awakening, at the same time that I came to uh, Buddhism, I, or awakening way of living, mm -hmm. I also started writing. 
Mm-hmm. I wrote my first poem when I was 10. <laughs> wow. And, well, I mean, it's just for me, it's just, it's, they've always been kind of inseparable. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I respect your, your question just to the utmost, because for me, it very much confirms um, what it is that is, I'm about as, in, as a career, as a human being who writes and practices and tries not to see them as separate things. Did you receive like support and encouragement? Because as I'm listening to being so young, you know, when you, you began, the first person that actually came to my mind in two different stories was Joseph Goldstein. Yeah, my colleague. Where um, yeah. I think I tell this story actually one of the, one of these stories in real love, and one he tells quite a lot himself. Was I think he was in kindergarten and he got a big red F on his report card for art, huh. arts and crafts because he he was messy, you know. And he that sight of that big red F was like, it's, I think the last time in his life was messy also, <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, and he tells also the story himself of. Um, I don't know how old he was, but he uh, was in uh, choir or whatever, glee club, whatever they called it in, his, club, in yeah. his school. And and, uh, and his teacher said to him, like, uh, please just mouth the words, you know, because they thought his voice was really bad. And then he he tells the story about, you know, of course, years and years and decades later, he was sitting as Sashin with Suzaki Roshi in the koan. He was given was how do you manifest Buddha nature while chanting the Heart Sutra? So of course the answer was something like chanting the Heart Sutra in in the Roshi's presence, and which was an agonizing thing for him. And uh, he went through whatever changes he went through, and then he sang it. He chanted it, and and after you know mocking him after all these days, Zaki Roshi just said, "Oh, very nice," you know. Um, without, so he, without being aware what a vindication it was. For yeah, so, you know, he passed his koan. But, knowing. you know, so many people, uh, their spirits or their creativity kind of gets squashed. It sounds yeah, like you yeah. you had a lot of support. Um, I just, I had a lot of determination, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. We don't live in a society, we don't live in a society that tends to, um, promote the image of the artist in a role model that's something we might all aspire to mm-hmm. as much as we have this image of, you know, the tortured artist. And yeah. and I also changed my um, practices, changed my view of art and artists, too. Mm-hmm. You know, where I uh, no longer see it so much as self-expression. Mm-hmm which is a common way of looking at it, but, you know, as I was saying earlier, as of uh, just being in touch with oneself and um, uh, a way of communicating with other people and being part of the universe as a creative gesture. or Like the universe is all a performance. Um, mm. Yeah, it's but there is certainly more, just like there's mindfulness in the schools. There's now poetry in the schools, mm-hmm. and I'm aware. I'm thinking of poetry, you know, but there's other arts that um, kids. I I think the, the 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 slams that kids do are terribly creative, even if they mm-hmm. may be uh, a little prima donna oriented. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean they're kind of all about me, me, me being better than everybody else and everybody competing at some level. But eventually, you know, it's become a real kind of common thing that kids are now um, creating their own art. It's like a children's book isn't usually by a a child. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, it's by an adult for children. But now kids are writing children's books. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if I look back to when I was first starting and and now, I think it's, it's... the trend is more toward um, enabling, encouraging, and supporting uh, creativity as part of the path. I mean, you just look at Julia Cameron, for Christ's sake. Yeah, that's true. It's amazing. You know, I mean, when I was, you know, in that in, in that growing up period, I can't think of anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious about when, uh, what, uh, what book <laughs> is called? Uh, when that came out. 
Well, it took five years. Uh-huh. Um, so when did it finally come out? I'm a bad historian. Um, and I don't have a copy by me. Um, <laughs> I guess I was curious about what era of hip-hop you reached. You know? Well, so the, the subtitle of what book, um, referring to hip-hop, beat to hip-hop, it's more of a, a measure of time mm-hmm. from 1950 to today okay. than uh, being, say, examples of countercultural poetry or anything. Mm-hmm. It really is eclectic and including it has 125 contributors Mm. from monks and kids to veterans to some of the fluxus people like Yoko Ono Mm. um, and uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's poem poetry Um, so it's it's more a recognition that there's been this influence of the Buddha or of awakening in poetry that I felt should be uh, acknowledged because mm-hmm. uh, Rumi and um, then soon Mary Oliver were really captivating a large, a considerably large audience, larger than it would be for you know Wallace Stevens or mm-hmm. something, um, as a popular uh, art form. And I wanted to just uh, make a large corkboard to put up instances and stand back and see what it might look like. And yeah, it seems like the influence, there's a kind of a revival of devotional poetry. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that includes um, stuff influenced by the Buddha. Someone else I'm sure could do one on yoga and contemporary Christian mysticism. Mm-hmm. Oh, great. So I'm wondering if just as a I'll send you a time... copy if you don't have one. I, uh, you know, I think I used to have one, so I would love a copy. Oh, you a new one. Great. great. Fabulous. Yeah. Um, as we are sadly drawing to a close in our conversation, I'm wondering if we could close with your uh, leading some kind of uh, reflection or contemplation from your newest work, Pause, Breathe, and Smile. I'd be thrilled and honored. Um, usually, um, I remind people I'm with and listeners to check in with their body to see if they, uh, are in a suitably, um, awakened state if uh, relaxed dignity in their composure, uh, maybe with the feeling where you're making contact with um, your body in the earth or the body in a chair, letting the head um, be like a ping pong ball on top of a fountain. And when I describe breathing, I always have to say, I'll be saying this, but if you're doing this, breathing is with the tongue and the roof of the mouth and breathing through the nostrils. And just noticing the freshness of the air and the in-breath. And seeing if the breath is warmed by the body with the exhale. This is good. I'm going to do it again. Breathing in, I'm feeling more of my body now. I'm feeling ribs expanding and such. Breathing out, letting go. I'm feeling the abdomen falling and... This is good. I'm going to do this again one more time. Breathing in, I'm feeling more sense of space. Breathing out, I'm feeling a a sense of the heart opening to a larger sense of, of what is. And so with just three conscious breaths, pausing, breathing, smiling, um, I'm going to um, seal it with uh, a smile and see what it feels like. See if, besides maybe feeling happier, just by the kind of mouth yoga that if I do this, I will experience something by adjusting the body that has a corresponding perceptional 
feel, but also noticing how my smile makes me feel more sovereign. I feel this is my experience, and it's adequate, and my smile confirms it. So this is um, a pausing, breathing, smiling that you can do any time throughout the day, whether you hear a bell, a phone, or you put a red dot on something, or you just notice the sky is blue and how, how happy the shade of blue might make you feel, or of noticing the solidity of the earth for the first time today, or it could be a child um, looking with the eyes of wonder at everything, or it could be the annoying sound of some helicopter, but whatever it is, this um, opportunity to pause, enjoy a few conscious breaths, and sort of set an intentionality of um, whatever it is that one's contacted and wants to further, certainly of being happy and for all beings to be happy. Because <laughs> if you're not enjoying this, I don't know why you want to do it. And um, yeah, you could use a literal bell or you could just uh, make anything your prompt. So I'll... Uh, invite a closure with the sound of a bell. Now, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Sharon. And thank you all for joining us today. Uh, to learn more about Gary's work and teachings, you can visit his website at www.garygach.com. And I encourage you to get a copy of his book, Pause, Breathe, Smile, which is available September 2018, everywhere that books are sold. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about Sharon's many offerings and her ongoing teaching schedule, please visit her website at SharonSalzberg.com.